Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here for an hour of ASP Netty goodness with Jeff Fritz. We'll talk to him in just a few minutes. But uh, first, how are you doing, my friend? Things are good. This is uh, the last show recording before the holidays, right? Before the holidays. So that we get to take the holidays off. But uh, we'll be back recording right first week of January. But uh, so we'll, happy holidays and happy new year and, you know, all those good things. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, good to be done. I have something I think you, of the three of us, will probably like the most. Hmm. So let's roll the crazy music. Okay. All right, dude, what do you got? Nimble text. Hmm? Nimbletext.com. Just go there and look at the animated GIF and what it's doing. And then tell me that's not awesome. That's pretty cool that it's actually, as you're writing a pattern, it's computing the results in a calculate window. Yeah. For each row in this list, and the list is Uncle Dave, comma, toy car. The next line is Terry, comma, hat, Sarah, comma, sneakers, blah, blah, blah. Substitute using this pattern. Insert into bad presence, name, comma, present, values, dollar sign, zero, dollar sign, one. And so now it creates SQL statements that basically say insert into bad presence, name, present, and all the literals for the things in that list. So that's just one application of nimble text. And it's basically right. a code generator. And uh, it has an online version and it has a download Windows app version. and if you just go down and look at some of the testimonials, I mean, first of all, our friend Scott Hanselman said, regular expressions are hard and I'm not very smart. <laughs> Nimble, te <laughs> <laughs> Nimble text lets me do crazy stuff with large amounts of text without it hurting so much. And uh, uh, Daniel Worthy said, I just created 250 SQL insert statements from an Excel file in a few seconds with Nimble text. Nice. This is a great tool. So... Uh, my friend and colleague, Brian McKay, uh, uses this extensively, and he's, he's saved a whole lot of time with it as well. Yeah. Now, this sounds like the sample app generator, you know, being able to generate data sets and things like that. But obviously, anything that helps me explore regex so my brain doesn't melt, I'm a big fan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just yeah. saying. Well, Richard, who's talking to us today? Grab the comment off show 1349, which we recorded with one Jeff Fritz. When he tried to convince us that web forms still exist, we all thought they were mythological, like unicorns, but here they are. And that was back in September of 2016. Got a lot of great comments off of that show. This one's from Juan, who says, thank you both for your clarification about the current status of ASP.NET web forms. It's a big relief. Being an ASP.NET developer since its first release and comfortable with any other technology, MVC, Core, Angular, or whatever else, I must say that WebForms for me is still the best technology around for certain kinds of websites, especially when you have lots of fields, forms, conditions, and complex validation. Mm. The abstraction, HTML output, and view state is what you want it to be if you work on it. The reusable yeah. components, events, internationalization, themes, code behind, and separation layers still have a huge difference years after its conception despite new technologies. It makes the development very fast for complex scenarios, so thanks for keeping it going. There you go. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, You're you welcome. rock. Juan says so, and I believe him. Yeah. So Juan, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet, but uh, turn off View State first, okay? <laughs> that would help. That would help. <laughs> I can only take so many megs of love. <laughs> 
Mm. <laughs> I'm going to shoot you some view state, baby. There you go. <laughs> Me and my repeater control are going to eat up some view state for you. Oh, well. Hey, hey, don't make me post you back. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me say that again. And that was the voice of Jeff Fritz. He's a senior program manager in Microsoft's developer division, working on some of the latest web technologies by leading the ASP.NET Web Forms team. As a longtime web developer and application architect with experience in large and small applications across a variety of verticals, Jeff knows how to build for performance and practicality. You can find his first book, Learn ASP.NET Core in 24 Hours, on Amazon and other places where dead trees are sold. On Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, you can catch Jeff hosting a live video stream called Fritz and Friends at live.jeffreyfritz.com. You can also learn from Jeff on Microsoft Virtual Academy and Wintelect Now. Follow him on Twitter at CSharpFritz and read his blogs at jeffreyfritz.com and blogs.msdn.microsoft.com slash webdev. Nice. Welcome back, Jeff. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. I appreciate coming back. And uh, before we even get started... Congratulations, 1,500 episodes. Holy crow. I know it. Yeah, we might even have this thing figured out, I think. Well, eh. Richard has only done 1,400. That's true. It's <laughs> only 1,400. Slacker. Yeah, no, I am the new guy. Let's be clear. That's uh, a new uh, guy. You can stay. The FNG. Yeah. But we did do 130 tablet shows together. We did. And I've done 569 run as radios together. Yeah. Oh, just me anyway. Yeah, yeah. And oh. what? This is my f- my fourth, fifth. Something I did like a, that. I did one or two tablet shows. Yeah. Did you? I haven't looked at tablet show in a that's while. That's right. So. Yep, we did. I think I think that's where we uh, that's where we started doing them. Maybe or maybe we started before then. I can't remember. It's been a blur. Mm. This is your fifth DNR. Okay. Yeah. A couple of tablet shows. Yeah, a couple of tablet shows, including that unit test show that it, it launched you into fame and fortune. That's right. Fame and fortune. Nah, I don't know about JavaScript that. JavaScript unit testing, right? JavaScript unit testing for Windows 8 applications. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. What, that was 2012 at TechEd? Yep, 2012. Then you went on Speaker Idol. Yeah, yeah. And did you win? I think you won. No, nope. I think David Giard won. I was a two-time loser. My nemesis, David Giard. There you go. But you both ended up joining Microsoft. That Tufty infographic is magic. Yeah. I, th- I think that's what won David. Yeah. So he may have won the competition, but I won the job at Telerik. I got hired as a developer advocate. Yeah. Yep. Did um, Speaker Idol the following year. Mm-hmm. Lost again, but that time to Jessica. Mm, yeah. Jessica DeVita, who's back at Microsoft as well. Mm. Yep. But I did get offered a chance to speak at TechEd in 2014 mm-hmm. and converted that into a job. So, Speaker Idol kind of works. Kind of works. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So, what's new in the world of web forms? The weird, wild, wonderful world of web forms. It's a beautiful thing. So, we're still going <laughs> strong. We're still building things. We're still managing and maintaining. Our friends at Google... They published a, a a it's not a vulnerability right they published a a, a way to work around SHA one right right yeah well I think yeah when you say if you take a SHA one package that's not salted and you post it into Google search it will simply return you the decrypted data <laughs> yeah yeah so um, we had to go through and we spent we spent a bit of time um, marking SHA-1 as obsolete throughout the framework of course yeah so that and encourage folks to use you know something a little bit more um, a little bit more cryptographically strong like HMAC 256 like dude 1996 called and wants its encryption method back oh yeah and, you know, but there are things that SHA-1 is still used across the internet, right? There are there are some headers that are SHA-1 hashed. They're not being cryptographically important, but they're being used for things like making sure you're accessing the latest version of a page, right? Right. Yeah. So, we, we've done some work, of course, to make sure that WebForms ASP.NET is up to snuff. It's still secure, still available for you to use. But we've also done some things um, to make sure that you have new features that help you keep up to date with the latest things you want to do on the web. So we see a lot of folks that want to start putting things into containers, right? Well, how do you how do you put a 
.NET Framework application into a container. Well, .NET Framework, that means it needs to run on Windows. And a Windows container running .NET Framework, that gets a little bit interesting. That's a whole new world. When people look at containers, they typically think Linux and all the different orchestration things you can do with Kubernetes, uh, Docker Swarm used to be talked about, all these things you could do to set up and orchestrate lots and lots of containers. Well, how would you do that if you wanted to start orchestrating web forms applications? And not just web forms, right? To be clear, all of ASP.NET 4.7. Well, you start running into some issues immediately with configuration, right? You don't want your configuration burned into your image because if your configuration is burned into the image, all the containers have the exact same configuration. That might be a good thing. That might be a bad thing Mm. if you want to set up regions of containers, right? Mm -hmm. When, gosh, guys, when we used to set up uh, server farms, you'd have a group of servers that would run with a certain configuration because maybe they're running out of a data center on the west coast of the United States. You want them to access a local database there. And yet another region on the east coast access the local database over there. So you can't have those configurations burn directly into the containers, especially when we start thinking about multi-region setups in our cloud environments. So how do we do it? Well, some folks decided they'll put together a PowerShell script that runs in a container to load up that configuration. And we thought about this and we went around on it and we started designing some container images to do things like PowerShell scripts to read and parse configuration and inject it into web config so you don't have to rewrite your application. And that works for for a number of folks. But if you want to start thinking outside the box, you want to start getting configuration from somewhere else. And this really starts to address a question and a problem that a lot of folks have had for a long time with the config file format. I mean, we've been dealing with this XML config file format since, what, 2001, 2002? And people lovingly... (laughs) whine (laughs) about app settings and connection strings sections and the other custom sections they want to put into it. And uh, I I particularly took a little bit of heat for not being able to support any files in ASP.NET. Any files? files? Holy man. Welcome to Windows (laughs) 3.0. No, Windows (laughs) 1.0. <laughs> I know. tell me about tell me about it. Jeez, that um, was in the eighties. Any files? Yes, I know. But it, but you know what? It's a really simple format. I yep. get it. So how do we get this extra configuration into into our .NET applications so that you don't have to rewrite things the way that you're accessing configuration manager in your C sharp F sharp VB code? Well, we put together a feature we delivered with .NET Framework 4.7.1. So that was the version that was delivered with the fall creators update in October 2017 called Configuration Builders. Hmm. Really simple idea. You add a section to your web config or app config that says, hey, I support configuration builders. And then you add a provider that points to whatever implementation of this abstract configuration builder definition you want to use. And we've got four different configuration builders available for you on NuGet. So these are packages that aren't delivered with the framework. You add them into your application and they're um, they're late um, late bound, right? They're lazy loaded into the application yeah. and will inject configuration from wherever you specify. So you can get stuff from your environment variables, load that into config manager in app settings or connection strings or wherever, right? You can get stuff from JSON files. You can get stuff from Azure Key Vault, yep. right? That's pretty important, pretty easy to mm-hmm. use. Yep. And the fourth one is a user secrets file that we can save somewhere else on disk. Mm. So... Here are four ways that you can load configuration into your application. And the big one for me is environment variables because folks want to be able to inject and orchestrate their containers with environment variables and information that's outside of the actual instance of their running container. You could call environment variables just the the fuel on which containers run. I mean, they're so they're so awesome for container apps. Absolutely. Every environment knows how to support environment variables. So it's easy to inject these things, whether they're being passed in on a command line, they're saved in a file on disk somewhere that you're going to inject into them. Or, you know what, if you need something completely different, you want to pull from a, a secure source like Azure Key Vault, you've got a configuration builder that will inject those settings for you at startup. 
no changes to anywhere that you access configuration manager dot connection strings or configuration manager dot app settings. Right. It just works. Nice. Nice. So we've taken and we've pushed that as a way to help you migrate, help you get your applications into the cloud, whether it's in Azure App Service, whether it's in one of the container environments, and that works great for you. Get out there and get things up to date. Yep. So that was our big feature that we delivered in 471 to really support this type of movement. Now, we do continue to innovate on ASP.NET. We want to make sure that folks um, continue to get new features, get capabilities to support the new environments and things that they want to be able to do as the web evolves. So in order to keep up with that, you're going to see us actually deliver more features as providers that are outside the framework. And we'll have just abstract implementations in the framework because we want to be able to update and maintain those new features as quickly as it takes the web to evolve, right? If the web is evolving quicker than Windows, then we need to be able to keep up with that. Windows has been delivering every six months. That's the pace that we've been moving with Windows 10 here. Creators update, fall creators update, the Windows 10 release, mm. all of these things every six months. Do you really want to wait six months for a new version of .NET Framework with a patch that includes new capabilities, <laughs> updated features? No. Yeah. Right? This is why we've done NuGet packages with .NET Core. So we're moving to be able to deliver more of those framework features outside the framework as packages to support the core capabilities that are in the .NET framework. I think nice. it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. You know, it, and it reminds me of when we were first starting to do this, get these out-of-band updates, and we didn't have stuff like NuGet, and it just became this management nightmare where you were just not able to figure out what was the correct configuration for operating anything. Absolutely. And because we have the ability to specify our .NET framework monikers inside our NuGet packages, mm -hmm. that means we have a very easy way for us to be able to tell whether the packages are compatible with the applications we're running. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. And and we have side-by-side -side execution these days, too. I mean, I, you think about when we did, is software development getting too complex? Right. That was like episode 470-something. Right, yeah. Like that's, that's in 2008. Like, we were just still figuring this stuff out. Well, I'll push you a little bit further on that writing with side-by-side -side configuration. Who cares about side-by-side? -side? I'm going to put my application in a container, and I don't care what it's writing next to. That container is running isolated in production. Yeah, right. Fantastic. Right. So I mentioned any files earlier. <laughs> yes, you did. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could do any files into our configuration? No, don't do it. <laughs> I've I've gone there, Carl. I have gone there. Stop Why the bad not? Man. <laughs> I'm. He's out of control. I'm a, I'm a glutton for punishment. Clearly. Well, you know there are so, people out there that need that. Okay, I get that. Yeah. I'm not convinced. I'm just not convinced. Really? You're going to support any files, so the guy who's complaining couldn't use any files. No, no. Still, but he's not going to be able to use them because he's still going to have to think differently. He's, he can think differently. Well, he wouldn't be using any files. How about file. we give him a tool to convert Hang his on. any file to a JSON file? <laughs> there's, there's another brilliant idea. Absolutely. How about this? So, I, we mentioned in my, um, in my profile there that I'm doing this live stream. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what? Let's... Let's show how easy it is to write our own configuration builder that pulls from another source. And I took a couple of episodes and we put together a configuration builder that reads any files. Fantastic. Nice. So there's now a package out there called fritz.configurationbuilders. It doesn't have a lot of downloads, but it has an any configuration builder in there. So you can specify, here's the any file I want to load, and it'll put those settings into your um, your web config or app config in memory so configuration manager can now access those settings you wrote into your any file. Nice. It's the best of both worlds. All open source. Well, there you go. And hold that thought right there while we uh, take a minute for this important message. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform .NET IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. 
from C-sharp, VBNet, F-sharp, and XAML to ASP.NET Razor syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here. We're talking Webforms vNext with, uh, or vNow, right? With Jeff Fritz. vNow, sure. Any files are still alive. <laughs> kind of. I mean, come on. There are folks out there using it. Absolutely. And that's, that's their choice. If that makes them happy, ah, okay. Rock on with your bad self. That's right. Nice. Some people like YAML. Okay. There's YAML folks out there, too. Do all that, too. You both know I'm working on the history of .NET. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I did my first round of interviews with uh, with Mr. Guthrie. He gave me two hours his time, which, let me tell you, I was very flattered. And I think we covered three years for like 1997 to 2000 in two hours. Wow. Including he produced... A 1997 notebook of his for the original designs of ASP.NET, which wasn't even called ASP.NET at that point. Whoa. And the conversation really focused on it. And so I think it's really relevant to what you're saying here. This idea of pragmatic versus ideal designs. That yes. we're willing to tolerate some ugliness to keep people working, that we tend towards the pragmatic, at least in the Microsoft world. And I mean, and you just brought that whole conversation back to me, Jeff, with thinking through, like, we're making fun of this idea of these any files, but it's like, you know, every dev you save, right? Every, every project uh -huh. that you can keep running with minimal fixes and still move forward, it's got to, it's very pragmatic. And it, I think it's got to generate a lot of loyalty. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. I mean, there's th there are the folks that say, "I ah, rewrite every application." You know, they're the consultant that's going to come into a, a, an environment and say, "You know what? Yeah, you've got you've got a nice application here, but it could really use some rewriting because it needs to be working on application language foo and right. framework bar, and that's the latest, and it's going to save you X amount of dollars, but you got to spend $2 million to rewrite your application. Sure, and half of that's going to go to me, because my <laughs> kids need to go to their third college. <laughs> yeah. It's not pragmatic. So, yes. and that's that's what I really relish about working with the WebForms team, with the ASP.NET team on these desktop frameworks, the 471, 472 frameworks. Where, you know what? There's a lot of folks out there. There's mm -hmm. millions of applications that are running in these versions of the frameworks. And I want to make sure that they still have a great place to work and live and keep up with the latest features that are on the web or in the cloud and be able to make it a ton easier for them to use that stuff because they chose these frameworks since it, it was real easy to get their hands around and develop applications fast. Yeah. I appreciate that sentiment. And I think it's a recurring theme when we dig into these technologies is what was the ideal choice? What was the pragmatic choice? Like, what are the balancing on that? Because you do still want to drag them forward. You still want to be able to take advantage of those new features or the new capabilities that people expect. Mm. So I'm going to call back to something you guys were joking about earlier about view state. And yeah. You know what? I can't stand view state. <laughs> view state is one of those things that you can abuse easily, right? Sure. There's a place for it, but you can abuse it badly. And abuse is encouraged by default. I think. <laughs> and and you know what? I'm I'm of the mindset that there are new modern ways to write web forms that you don't need view state. Right. I agree with you 100%. I've gotten the most out of web forms when I turn view state off and use it more like a uh, an easy way to get a service up and running. Absolutely. Um, I'm actually working on a, a little bit of an ebook called Modern Web Forms Development that talks about turning off view state, using model binding, minimal session interaction. Yeah. 
doing things a little bit more pragmatically, taking more advantage of how the framework is built, and then you end up with a faster application that's easier to maintain. Yep. Yeah, makes total sense. Now, I would submit to you that we have a new view state here in 2018. I'll call it 2018 because of time shifting. I think the new view state we're looking at is this immense collection of JavaScript libraries that people minify and compress and they serve to you so that you, so that you can start using their application. Right. Yeah. If you're downloading 350K of JavaScript libraries just so you can show a form, how is that any different than somebody shipping down to you 300K of view state? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same problem. It's, same problem. Well, the view state Let's, goes around and around and around and around, whereas that- It does. A minified JavaScript thing comes down only once. Sure. And you're going to end up getting it served to you only the one time. It's going to be cached. Absolutely. It's that first visit that you're going to get hammered on it. Yeah. And and, and I know you're going to go for the first time because if you're using the script manager, you're bundling all the scripts together, which means any change to any JavaScript anywhere means the cache object's invalid and you've got to download the whole thing Oh, that's again. true. Yep. Yep. So I think there's ways that we need to encourage better development practices with our JavaScript, with our view state, and really get people back thinking about pragmatically delivering smaller applications that behave better. I mean, if the browser vendors are going to build faster browsers, it doesn't matter if you've got memory leaks all over your JavaScript or you've got a ton of view state that's just filling up all your browser's bandwidth. No, no. Let's make things simpler. Let's get back to doing things um, <laughs> when we had people requesting over very slow network. Yeah. yeah. Those were the days, so, weren't they, Jeff? Oh, they were. <laughs> the days of slow but, networks. Boy, I remember them fondly. Yeah. Where's, where's that modem, modem tones? <laughs> Love those. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You're emulating that remarkably well. Yeah. Too well. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but wasn't the sin with view state what the component vendors did with it? That it was, you didn't realize until you built some pages, some of the controls out there, just how much stuff they were stuffing into view state. Um, it, both component vendors and anybody who was building, right, composite controls. Right. Yeah. Right. You didn't know what was going on inside those controls. I went into an organization where the developers before me built a bunch of composite controls and they put them into a class library and they loaded all kinds of things into view state. I mean, composite controls that each had a grid view in it yeah. and the grid view itself was putting its data into view state. I didn't know because of that hierarchy of controls. Mm. It, it was so tricky to find where that leak was. And then when I did find it, I've got to change these composite controls that other folks wrote. And that was kind of a headache. That was painful to do. Sure. My scariest view state moments were when people built data grids with editable controls in each shell, 50 or so rows visible. So you did the math and said, guys, there's, there's 300 controls on here, each continuously maintaining state. Yeah, it becomes unwieldy because of that composite control problem. Um, But there's ways that we would love to have been able to work around it. It would have been great to be able to just turn off view state on those controls, Mm -hmm. but you don't know what you're going to break. Right, right, sure. Because they may depend on it and reference it further down. I think there's a real opportunity for folks that have existing applications out there to start, you know what, just start turning off view state and see what you can do to put that data in other places that it makes more sense coming back and forth. I mean, if you're getting data out of a database, do you really need to send it back and forth to the browser? Well, you know, a lot of it is the state of the visual controls themselves. So it, it does help to store it somewhere. But you know, I, getting back to Dino Esposito's book in the, you know, probably episode five of .NET Rocks, where he talked about a way to put the view state on the server just in using the file directory. And uh, that turned out to be a really good a good solution. But uh, that's not what I want to talk about. Richard, guess what time it is now? It uh, must be that happy time again. Yes. It's time to announce that we are releasing this episode of .NET Rocks as a base64 encoded string inside an any file. <laughs> Have at it. Nobody's just crack wrong. That. I think it's safe. 
safe. Totally safe. I wrote my own encryption <laughs> algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and... Leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. But learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Antonio Moore. Congratulations, Antonio. Golf clap for you, Golf sir. Golf clap for Antonio Moore. Antonio just won that D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guests, of course, Jeff, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? Uh, so I've been, I've been leveling up my, my sound game here at home. Ah. Um, and uh, I've been using a, a Rode Podcaster microphone here. Nice. And it's plug it's USB. It's plugged right into my PC now. And, I've I've just upgraded my PC here. I've got the latest Surface Book 15 inch with the uh, video card in the base. But I'd really like to get my hands on a mixer and go a little bit more analog so that I can mix mm. and be able to handle some of those more advanced sound things a little bit better as I start to get into a little bit more sound production and video work here. Cool. So I I have no idea. Gosh, Carl, what would you recommend for a startup mixer for somebody who needs, eh, what, four or five channels? So, let me ask you this. What are you planning to record with this mixer? So? Like, how many channels would you be recording at the same time? So, I'm probably going to be looking at um, perhaps a guest, somebody who's who's uh, interviewing, working with me on a project. Yeah. Um, sound from the PC. Yeah. Um, of course, my microphone. So, yeah, probably three, four tops. Well, okay. So, it gets really easy if you're under eight. You can get a USB 3-based eight-channel audio um, interface. Okay. For around three or $400. Some of the more um, elaborate ones maybe cost around seven or $800. Um, if you want to go down to a very you know, just a two-channel thing. You can get something like the USB Dual Pre from Art, which is USB-powered, and it has two preamps in it. So that's just two mm. microphones, and that's really cheap and pretty good. But most of the stuff that you're going to mix, you're going to mix on the on the uh, software. And, yeah. yeah. And, and I use PreSonus software and hardware now in the studio for the for the real professional stuff. But the PreSonus software is called Studio One, and it is fantastic. It's fast. It's modern. Uh, it, it just works. It's never crashed on me once, and it has all the features that you want. Nice. Yeah. So I won't have to use Audacity anymore, huh? Well, I mean, if you're just recording stuff and you wanted to just do some editing and all that, yeah, I would even I would use Audition. I would use Adobe Audition. It has better editing uh, for audio. But um, if okay. you're just, you know, doing destructive edits and all that kind of stuff. But if you're producing stuff, like if you want to have music tracks and effects and this kind of stuff and, you know, some really good EQ and some compression and all that stuff, I'd use Studio One. Okay. I'll take those notes with yeah. me. Well, that's it. So, uh, any files? 
Let's get back to that because that's a fantastic <laughs> story. I think that's really great. <laughs> no, so I I did. I had somebody um, very upset that we weren't supporting any files so with uh, with our new configuration options. Can so I I wrote an open source provider. Here you go. Give it a shot. What about config sys and auto exec bat? Do you uh, can we read oh. those? Those would be good. No. Yeah, come on now. Come on now. <laughs> 20th century called and they want their configuration back. Nice. <laughs> it is true, though, that you oh, can man. do a lot with web forms, not using them like web forms, but I guess it feels like, you know, if you're doing all that stuff, you know, why don't you just do a web API, I guess. Maybe because of the learning curve. Not a whole lot of learning curve if you're doing some simple things, though. No, I think I, I think the real push with web forms and why it feels so, so productive um, really is around the ability to, to use those controls, right? I agree. That black box of code that just delivers a feature, right? Yep, right. But we do have those very similar features when we look at things like tag helpers and view components when we look at ASP.NET Core. We don't have the, the rich ecosystem around those yet, but it's, it's there. And, and really, we want to get folks into being able to build their applications quickly with the languages they're used to. HTML, mm -hmm. using a little bit of directives in there, whether those directives are ASP colon control name or a tag helper. We want to make you as productive as possible. Okay. And where you're going, Carl, with using Web API and writing some simple HTML to access it, well, you can do the same thing with those same methods that you would have in your API to, to fetch or update data. You can still put those in your web form and mark them static. Mm -hmm. And as a web method with the web method attribute, and now you can actually use the JavaScript in line in the web form to interact with those methods directly using JavaScript. That is cool. That is very cool. So it's a nice way to reuse your features back and forth between those two technologies. Yeah. Now, where you really want to get to, right, it would be great to refactor that out into a third-party class, right? Put it into another class. Heck, put it into a class library. All that business logic so that whether it's wired up to a web API mm. or it's wired up to a web method or even being called by a method inside of your web form, well, gosh – um, let it live somewhere else and then it can be tested and reused easily. But then how do you get it into the web API or into a web form? Well, we know how to do dependency injection with web API. That's something easy to do. Folks have been doing that for some time now. I mean, gosh, the, when MVC came out in what, 2008, people were immediately figuring out, well, here's how we can inject dependency injection in there so that you can make these things work with your MVC controllers and then web API, of course, picked up and supported a similar architecture. Yes. Wouldn't it be cool if you could do that with web forms? <laughs> I'm just yeah. saying, wouldn't it be cool? Yeah. So that's one of the things that we have planned for this next version is we want to give you the ability to pause what's happening when these things are being constructed, whether it's a web form or a user control or some other control. And if you want to execute a little bit of code while that object is being constructed, we're going to give you that capability. Mm. And for the most part, you're going to want to inject something like a dependency injection container mm. to appropriately inject your dependencies. Yeah. Okay. But you can do other things, right? You could do logging. You can do analytics. You can do all kinds of metrics and performance things. But coming with the next version, and you're going to see this in the preview versions of the .NET framework coming out, you're going to see the ability to use a dependency injection framework with web forms. Nice. And the idea is we want to encourage you to be able to refactor your applications. Please, please and I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to the listener for a second. Hey, listener, this is Jeff, your, your .NET <laughs> friend. Listen, get your SQL statements out of the ASPX files. Mm. Put yeah. them somewhere else mm. in a class, and we're going to let you inject that class so that your web form knows how to read and execute that code without having SQL statements in ASPX files. Yep. Makes a heck of a lot of sense. Yep. Makes life easier, that's for sure. Right. I mean, the nightmare I always had as a developer was the DBA comes and says, you know what? We need to optimize this SQL statement. Mm -hmm. And now I've got to go and change ASPX files. Yeah. Oh, 
Not good. Right? Nobody wants to ship new ASPX files. Nobody wants their application to recompile on the server because a database changed. Right. Move it out somewhere else, and we're going to give you the ability with dependency injection to relocate that code. And then if it's relocated into a class library, wouldn't it be great if you made that class library .NET standard? Well, that's crazy talk, Jeff. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? And then you could start refactoring and saying, you know what? Let's move a section of this code into ASP.NET Core. You have that option mm. at that point, right? Or, you know what? It's .NET standard now. Put it into a Xamarin application and have it running on someone's wristwatch or on someone's refrigerator. Whatever. Knock yourself out. Absolutely. So, it's it's the start of moving things, giving you the ability to refactor more easily because the code isn't tightly bound to your web form. Nice. You could be like Michelangelo with your code. Uh, put a little bit here, put a little bit there, sprinkle some functions over in Azure over here. Boom. You, you sound like the guy at my pizza parlor. And maybe I'm hungry. <laughs> maybe that's it. That's what it is. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Not bad. All right. I like yeah. it. But it's also very counter to, I mean, we've always thought that this was the problem with web forms. They couldn't do any of these modern things. I mean, that was what the whole push to MVC was about. It's like, okay, well, we can't do that. So we're going to have to go to something else. Right. The reason to move to MVC was you couldn't test. You had view state hanging over your head. You couldn't do dependency injection. And you know what? We're slowly breaking down those walls. Mm. Right. It's how do we do it without breaking compatibility? Right. How do we add these as enhancements so that you can opt in and do that? And if you do opt in and do it, then you have a lot more flexibility to start refactoring and taking advantage of some of these other features. Sure. It makes perfect it sense to use Web API with web forms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But you know what? It, it's it's a mess to rewrite code to move it over there. Yep. Okay. Yes. Let's not do that. Let's not do that. Let's refactor a little bit cleanly. Yeah, that's very, very compelling. And it just means that we don't have any reason to move our existing apps. We keep adapting. You can keep adapting. If you want to start taking advantage of some of the new features and frameworks, it's now an option without right. doing a complete rewrite. That's really where I think the compelling thing is with web forms, with ASP.NET, is I don't need to do a complete rewrite when I want to take advantage of new features. I think, however, speaking of rewrites, that um, since .NET Core 2 shipped, there's a lot of moldy, oldy uh, retro systems out there that you know were built mostly on ASP.NET 2. And uh, are now, you know, lifting and shifting, uh, to quote the parlance of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yes. you know, this is a, a good time, you know, if, if things need to be re-architected and rethought because they're so old and things have been bolted on, that I, I've personally seen in the AppV Next company, the consultancy that I have, more people interested in doing complete rewrites from ASP.NET 2 you know, or maybe even three, to uh, .NET Core 2, because this is the time to do it. It started the day .NET Core 2 shipped. I started getting phone calls. Hmm. Yeah, you know what? And when you think about it, ASP.NET 2 was, what, 2005, 2006? Mm. You're looking at applications that are probably 10 years old. Yep. Yeah. If your application is older than your car... <laughs> <laughs> it might be time to think of a rewrite. <laughs> you might need a rewrite. <laughs> That's right. We did a show a few years ago, maybe three, with Paul Sheriff talking about using responsive web design on web forms that you could make web forms pages that worked fine on mobile devices. Absolutely. There are features in there. If you look at just the default templates that come mm -hmm. with an ASP.NET Web Forms application, file new web application and you choose the web forms template, mm. it has the bootstrap framework enabled and wired up to it and it does respond properly when you do resize your browser, when you put it on a mobile device. Absolutely. Mm. And there's also features there to not just do that type of adaptive rendering, but you can also do alternative rendering and you can serve specific pages that are targeted towards specific devices, right? right? If it's a mobile device and it has this size screen, then here's the rendering that I want. Absolutely easy features to light up 
with the capabilities that come with the default templates. Yeah, and it, of course, I think he was talking about Bootstrap back then, but you guys have got pretty mm-hmm. good templates for all these things these days. Um, we focus on Bootstrap. That's the one that we've heard most of our customers request. Right. But you could certainly get templates for some of the other uh, responsive libraries out there. Nice. And again, you get to the kind of question where it's like, hey, we've been using this site for ages. I want it to work on my iPad. I want it to work on my phone. What do we got to do? Oh, and it's it's not just I want it to work on my iPad, right? It might be. It, so what if some of the engineers come in and they say, hey, look, I've got the new iPhone 10 and and I want to make sure that this application fits on it, but it needs to handle the rounded, rounded corners yeah. and it needs to handle the square box at the bottom. And of course, what application isn't complete if it's not missing a black trapezoid in the <laughs> middle of the top of the display? Yep. I mean, come on. Everybody wants a black trapezoid. Everybody. <laughs> everybody does. Absolutely. With a notch taken out of the top of it. I mean, who would do that? <laughs> who would do such a thing? It's amazing. You need this. <laughs> the engineers might say, hey, this is a great thing that I need in my application because I want to support my latest device. But it isn't until that first vice president in marketing comes in with the iPhone 10 and says, hey, this doesn't look right on my device, that you actually get the funding to go and do that. Oh, yeah. Hmm. No, no. They, the number of times I've heard from uh, operations folks as well as from development folks is like the CTO showed up and with an iPad and said, I'll be working from this from now on. Mm. Figure it out. Yeah. Yep. And you, and you just you don't get you know, there are no options. Good luck. Get to it. A- absolutely. Now you've got a challenge. What do I do? How do I handle this? I've got to get one of my hands on one of these devices so I can test and adapt to what it is they're doing. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, let's face it. Most of us in the tech fields, we're we're <laughs> going back to the the question earlier. We're we're gadget junkies. Sure. We're probably going to be getting some of these devices before some of the mainstream folks. So I, I look at, well, people haven't picked up and, and really jumped on to augmented reality or virtual reality yet. No. But when the first person comes up and says, hey, I want to be able to view this web page on my VR helmet. Well, now we're looking at something different. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, we got to do web a little bit differently because somebody now is it has a bit of funding and they want to make sure the website looks great on a different dimension in a right, different device. Right. All right. Well, and I wonder if we're hovering on the edge of it. I mean, it's the beginning of 2018 uh, when this show comes out. And I feel like we're ripe for disruption. That, And I presume it's going to be augmented reality. It's just going to be the device that disrupts the mobile phone. And suddenly everybody's content that they've been happy to work on a PC, on a laptop, on a tablet on a phone it's like you could make it work on the goggles right mm-hmm. i'm not so sure it's going to be a device i mean i think the phones will be doing ar there already are kind of yeah but i mean you just don't get the stereoscopic view of it but but they're certainly doing it yeah oh since uh, what the pokemon go app uh yeah yeah last summer summer 2016 right yeah yeah and uh, that was a dot net app overlaying images of cartoon characters on your photos mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. Simple, well, hooked up to a GPS, you know. Snapchat. Great application. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? You get the same thing going on there, too. So, what happens when I want to start doing some of those things with web pages? How, how does that work? And I think that's something that we need to start thinking about and looking at because the web's not going away. Mm, yeah. Oddly enough. <laughs> I tried to make it go away once, but it just kept coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you. We can't exorcise the browser. Nice. No. It's like that hungry dog in the alley. It just keeps coming back for dinner every night. <laughs> You're going to feed me, right? Absolutely. I realize my children's only experience with not having the internet is they didn't do their chores. <laughs> That's funny, right? Mm, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. It, uh, um, my kids are, um, I know this. They're 14 and 10. No, 14 go. and 11. <laughs> yes. No, wait. Yes, 14 and 11. <laughs> and, sorry, uh, honey. And it, sorry. Sorry, anyway. Um, yeah, Mrs. Fritz is out there going, oh, no. Again. Um, That's not funny. But, but 
<laughs> but they've had a screen for most of their life, right? Sure. I'm someone in the tech field. They've either had their hands on dad's iPad or, or mom's tablet, you know, at, at one point or another. And, and you know what? I let them have their own phones. Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I see it as this is something where, um, because I find my iPhone on there, I know exactly where they are, right? Yeah. If they're carrying their phone and they're out with their friends hanging out in the neighborhood, I know exactly where they are. I don't need to yell out the door to say, hey, you know, time to come home. I can actually not just call them, but walk up to exactly where they are. Yeah. Right. You know? So, I, the the flip side of it is, yes, they've got – they've been around. They know their way around the web. They know how to use YouTube. But you know what? They don't need to be in front of – a computer screen all the time. No. They've now gotten so used to it that it's it's second nature and searching the web for things, asking Siri to do things for them is not something that was novel like it was for us the first time that we asked Siri how much wood could a woodchuck chuck. You know what? It's those people that I think are going to be the interesting next audience that we need to look at for the sure. web that don't need to be there all the yeah. time like some of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, I say that as I look around my office at f- what five screens, six screens, kind of managing the way that I do my job. So, mm. I, I think it's an interesting audience that we're looking at going forward. And I don't think that the phone as we see it today is really the end all be all device where we're going to be in the next five years. It's going to yeah. change. It yeah, certainly change. will change. And you'll hear about that change right here on .NET Rocks with Jeff Fritz next year. <laughs> and the right. year after when we'll still be talking about any files yeah. and view state, <laughs> and view state. you will make the any work on the new device That's I know right. you will absolutely if we need any files everywhere we need IR any uh, reality never mind maybe they'll be outies by then Jeff it's been so much oh. fun talking to you come back again uh, will you thank you guys absolutely okay and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...